0: My name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church. Thanks for taking some time to be with us today. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome! We are so glad that you're here, and I'd like to invite you to let us know that you're watching. Covenant's a community of friends and families, and we'd be thrilled to help you to start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. All you need to do is take a moment right now and head over to bgcovenant.org connect. Just hit pause and let us know how we can get in touch. If you're not quite ready for that yet, I just want you to know that when you're ready to be known, we would love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon for our live Sunday service at 9.30 or 11 a.m., in person or online. But with all that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message.
1: We've been talking about poetry in the Bible, how biblical poets love design and masterfully use metaphor and symbolism. These poems invite us into an experience to ponder ideas slowly and from many angles.
2: And the largest collection of poetry in the Bible is the Book of Psalms. So that's what we're going to look at here.
1: Now, the Israelites composed lots of poetry throughout their history.
2: Yeah, poems were written by Israelites, sages, kings and prophets. Some poems were sung by choirs in the Jerusalem temple, while others were prayed by families at home. And over the centuries, the most important and widely read poems were compiled together to be read or sung on special occasions. And I am familiar with books of poetry, a large collection of the greatest poems in one place and I can read through and pick my favorites. But the book of Psalms is not that kind of collection. Here, each poem has been expertly crafted and then placed where it is for a reason, to create a storyline from the book's beginning to its end. The Psalms poetically retell the entire biblical story and they invite you into a literary temple. A
1: literary temple?
2: Yeah, so the tabernacle and then later the temple in Jerusalem were where ancient Israelites went to meet with God. When you arrived, you would see art and imagery everywhere. You would see priests performing rituals, you would hear songs and prayers, all of it symbolically proclaiming that your God rules the world from this mountain and you are in his living room.
1: So the temple was a place to be in God's presence and also to immerse yourself in the story of God's kingdom.
2: Exactly. And so, Try to imagine how traumatic it was when the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem, plundered and burned the temple, and then took many Israelites into exile.
1: Yeah, where can they go now to meet with God, to sing their story and say their
2: prayers? That is where the book of Psalms comes in. It is a prayer book for exiles designed as a virtual temple. You enter the Psalms to meet with God and to hear the entire biblical story of God's kingdom sung back to you in poetry. Cool, but how does the Psalms do it? Let's start with the book's design. There are 150 poems broken up into five clear sections. At the beginning, there has been placed a short introduction, Psalms 1 and 2, which lay out the main themes of the whole book by reviewing the biblical storyline. Okay. Psalm 1 looks back to the Garden of Eden and its river of life. Yeah,
1: God placed humanity in a garden temple. and Here, humans decide to define good and evil on their own terms and so are exiled from the garden.
2: But the first psalm paints a portrait of hope about an upright human who delights in God's wisdom, which is called Torah or instruction. This person is like the tree of life in the garden temple. They eternally blossom because they are planted in the river of God's life.
1: Yeah, that is beautiful, but who is it supposed to be?
2: Well, remember that story in Genesis after humanity's foolish rebellion, God made a promise.
1: Oh right, a future human,
2: the seed of the woman who would come and defeat evil and restore the world. And that is what Psalm 2 is about, God's promise that a king would come from the line of David. He's called the Son of God and the Messiah. God appoints him to bring justice on human evil and to restore God's kingdom and peace over the nations. So Psalms 1 and 2 introduce all these main themes. Yes, and then the book develops those themes through the five sections. The first two explore the complicated story of David and his royal family. The third section focuses on the tragedy of Israel's exile and the downfall of David's royal line. But then the fourth and fifth sections rekindle the hope for the Messiah, a new temple, and God's kingdom on the other side of the exile. Then the book ends with a five-part conclusion praising God for his faithfulness. Cool. Now, nearly half of the Psalms are
1: connected to one guy, King David, who God chose to rule Israel.
2: Yes, David's story is really important in this book. He experienced many times of hardship, but he trusted God with radical faith. And in these poems, David shares his fears, confesses his failures, and offers thanks to his Redeemer. And he's constantly speaking of a deep longing to be in God's presence in the temple. But wait, David lived before
1: the temple was even built.
2: Exactly. This portrait of David, hoping and praying for God's kingdom and a future temple, it resembles the hopes of the later generations of the exiles. And so, David's prayers could become theirs as well. David's
1: like a prayer coach, giving us words for how to pray and how to discover God's presence in
2: good times and bad. Exactly. There are 73 poems connected to David, but most of the rest come from later generations of biblical poets, and they have learned to pray and hope like David. And so the end result is the Book of Psalms, designed as a virtual temple for all generations of God's people.
1: This isn't a kind of book you just read once and put down.
2: No, it's designed for a lifetime of slow rereading and reflection. These prayers and laments and songs of praise are meant to become our own, they're poems for exiles who are learning to live by God's wisdom and to seek God's justice in the world as they hope for the coming Messiah and the kingdom of God.
3: Well, good morning. My name's Terrence Armentano, and I'm an elder here at Covenant Church. And I wore this shirt today specifically because I'm usually over in the gym with my wife doing kids' church. And um, my wife is Allison Armentano. and if you were here a couple weeks ago, Ava is one of my daughters who Kyle brought up on stage. And at at Kids Church, we love to start out our our time with a video that helps us kind of capture what we're going to be talking about for that day. So I thought this is a great way to sort of do that here as well. Um, So today we're going to be zooming out of the Psalms to hear the story that it tells so that we can zoom in and see ourselves in light of that story. And I love that it says that the Psalms poetically retell the entire biblical story, and they invite the reader into a literary temple to meet with God. So, as we saw from that video, this idea of temple was incredibly important to the people of God, starting all the way at the beginning with the Garden of Eden. That was the very first temple. And and ultimately what the temple is, it's a place for people to meet with God, to interact with him, to uh, spend time with him. So the very first garden, the very first temple was the Garden of Eden. And when I was thinking about this idea, um, the first place that humans met with God walking in the cool of the day spending time with their creator uninhibited by sin just beauty majesty glory all the good stuff and when you all think about sort of your dream vacation the place that you want to go to spend time the the summer nights you know whether it's Hawaii or Alaska or there's something in our hearts that are, that wire us for that natural beauty and our hearts know the geography of our original temple um, in the garden and we long for it we lost it we lost it um, when adam and eve sinned and the entire rest of the bible is about the story of how god's going to bring us back into fellowship with him how he's going to rescue us and restore us and return us to eden So if the Psalms is a literary temple for the exiles, was a new temple ever created? So as the story goes, um, they started out in a garden temple, and then there's a tabernacle, and then they built the temple, and this was a place for God to come and meet with them, right? And then that was destroyed, and the, the Israelites were taken out of Jerusalem and exiled into Babylon, and all of, now they have the Psalms. They sing, they they have the poetry, they have the music, and they can retell the stories to themselves as as they remember what God did for them. So if this acts as a literary temple for the exiles, did they ever rebuild a new temple? The answer is yes, but it's not the kind of temple you might think. Fast forward about 600 years from that exile to the time of Jesus. I'm going to read from 2 John. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. So just so you know, King Herod at the time was rebuilding the temple, and they would turned it into something that kind of really upset Jesus. He saw dealers at the table exchanging foreign money, Jesus made a whip from some ropes, and he chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle, scattered the money changers, coins over the floor, and turned over the tables. I mean, this was raucous, if you can think about it. Like, he's furious. Um, This really upset him. I mean, he took the time to, like, whittle out a cord and, like, walk around and, like, knock animals out of there. Then going over to the people who sold the doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures, Psalm 69, 9 actually, passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you the authority to do this, show us a miracle to prove it. All right, Jesus says. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. What? They exclaimed, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple. And you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said, this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. So what you see happening here, Jesus was claiming that he was the true temple. Probably they're like, what? Okay. But there's more. This new temple would expand out and be available to all of creation. How? How is that possible? After his resurrection, Jesus said that God's presence would come and dwell in and among his followers so that we would become like many temples. The Apostle Paul confirms this truth in 1 Corinthians when he said, Do you not know? that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And again in Corinthians when he says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? Whom you have received from God? You see, this is the Bible's vision of the church, which is described as a temple. The meeting place of God, the place where God comes to meet with us. It's not a building, but a people. We're ever-expanding communities of people where God rests and rules and brings light and life into the dark and dying world. That is just so beautiful to see that picture if you walk through what God is doing. When I look around this room, I can even see just beautiful temples of God Working through godly businessmen, teachers that love the Lord, educators, um, foster parents, family members, parents, going out into the world and being a light, being an active light. We can read the Bible from beginning to end, filled with hope, knowing that the prophesied Messiah has come. Our sins are forgiven. Relationship with God has been restored, and we can fellowship with him in our hearts. This is pretty radical. So what God is essentially doing is he's drawing us to himself. We inhabit the living God in our hearts. That is in us. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, his life, death, and resurrection on the cross— He enters into your body, and now you have become a temple of the the living God. And together as one body, the body of Christ, we become the temple that then goes out into the world and invites people to meet God, to know God. We do his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The temple of our heart, where we meet with God, is a lot like a garden that needs to be fed and watered and cared for to experience more of the fruit God wants to grow in our life more love more joy more peace more patience more kindness some of the best some of the best ways to tend that garden in your own heart is to read scripture to know it to pray to be together to sing to praise to make those active habits of your life Because when you think about a garden and you're trying to tend it and you look at, and and if you've ever done this before, you don't just water it once a month. You don't just um, barely take care of it. You're kind of on it and you're growing it and it's growing in you. And through that, the fruit that God wants to grow in your heart, in your life, will grow. But we can't neglect it. I want to jump into Psalm 19 with this perspective. This perspective that we are the the living temple of the Holy Spirit. That the Messiah that the Psalms talk about has come, He's lived, He died, He rose again. And that when we can come into the Psalms, we can look at it from that perspective. So I'm going to read Psalm 19. This is a great psalm to tend the garden of your heart. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth, and their words to all the world. God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. It bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after the wedding. It rejoices like a great athlete eager to run the race. The sun rises at one end of the heavens and follows its course to the other end. Nothing can hide from its heat. Now the psalmist beautifully transitions to the instructions of the Lord. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, receiving, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The law of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. They are a warning to your servant and a great reward for those who obey them. How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I will be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I just love this last part when it goes into the psalmist. Well, let's go through that. The psalmist goes from... Worshiping God and seeing him in all of creation. And then he transitions into how the sun illuminates everything here on earth. That the Lord's commands, his laws, illuminate and bless our hearts. They're so good. And we know that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those laws and all those commands. And as followers of Christ, we look at this psalm and we say, we have the one who walked the perfect path road we have the one who lived the perfect life we have the one who gives that life to us and empowers us with his holy spirit when we look at these commands and laws of the lord we can we can look to jesus and we can say jesus we want to know you we want to make you known we want to go deeper in our walk with you Jesus, there's so much more we can do, so much farther we can go with you. He wants to to make us holy as he is holy. He wants to make us more in his own image. So here at Covenant Church, we always talk about our mission is to know Jesus and make him known. Why? Because his ways are perfect. His life was perfect and is perfect. And the beautiful story of the Bible is that we had relationship with God in the garden and it was good. And we broke the Father's heart when we sinned against Him. And we break the Father's heart to this day when we continue to ignore Him in our own lives. But He doesn't leave us as a people with broken hearts, He had a plan to rescue us. And as we read the Bible, I want to encourage every one of you, as you read the Bible, look at the Bible as one entire story that points to Jesus. The entire Bible is about Jesus. So what does Jesus want to do in your heart? What is he calling you to do in your life? Because the way that he tends to grow that that temple, that temple garden that's in your heart, the way that he grows that is he calls you into something new. And he calls you further up and further in to a relationship with him. It gets deeper and wider and greater and more fascinating the more that we follow and obey him. Jesus says, those who love me obey me. So when we hear the Lord calling us into doing something in our life, calling us to obey him in a certain area, he's usually doing it because he wants to grow more fruit in your life. He wants you to experience more of Jesus in your heart, more of the joy and the goodness and the kindness and the blessing that he has for you. So what often happens in in a life of a Christian, somebody that said, you know what, I confess my sin. I've been selfish. I don't want to be selfish, Lord. I give you my life. I want to make you the Lord of my life, and I want you to be over everything from this point on. We say that God comes in, He pulls out that old uh, hard heart, and He gives you a new heart of life, a new heart that's soft. The temple of the the temple is like alive and well in your heart. And here's what happens to Christians: a lot of times, will. Make that proclamation. We'll start walking with the Lord. He's bringing you into deeper and deeper things with him. He's showing you the vastness of his creation. He's showing you the sins that you want to leave behind and the new life you want to enter into. And a lot of times, Christians will, he'll take you to something and you say, I'm just not sure I want to give that one up. You know, and he'll let you kind of just stay there. He's like, no, there's so much more in this garden to show you. There's so much more beauty, so many more fruits I want to give you, but you really have to enter into this, you really have to obey me on this thing you have to and, and that thing's going to be different for different people so what I've noticed as I've been I have eight kids and I've been raising children and watching how love multiplies and how love can continue to grow and how it can sometimes be stifled is that one of the key components is obedience It's obedience. And it sounds like something in our culture, we don't like to say, nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'll do my own thing. But when God asks you to do something and you obey Him, you walk into a deeper aspect of your life with God. When He he asks you to do something and you do it, whether that be making a meal for somebody at the pregnancy center or babysitting somebody's kids, you're going out of your way to do something. When he asks you to do these things, and you do them, your heart gets a little bit more sanctified. And it's beautiful. So with my own kids, I notice that as they they obey me, I feel loved. I feel their love through obedience. And the funny thing about it is, as they obey me because they love me, this trust between us grows. And there's this trust... Is the DNA of our faith it happens with God and it happens in human relationships so what I noticed is that as my trust in the obedience of my kid is increased their freedom is increased and they can have more uh, grace and more freedom to do what they want to do because I don't have to be all over them and that's kind of a picture that I see in the Bible where it's like God's ultimate Hope for us is that we would love him and trust him and obey him, and as we do that, he gives us the freedom to kind of do what we want to do as far as serving him in his kingdom. Um, I don't even have to tell my kids a bedtime because I'm like, they're kind of like, Oh, I should probably go to bed. I'm getting tired now, it's like nine. I'm like, Okay, cool. Do you want to stay up a little later and watch them? They're like, No, I should go to bed. But I'm like, They've learned that, like, okay, bedtime is this, it's probably healthy for me, and they've picked that up and they're like, Yeah, I should probably get to bed. So what I see happening throughout the story of the Bible is God wants a few things. He wants our love and affection, and he wants our obedience. And he wants our obedience to be does, he wants our obedience to be motivated by his love and his goodness and his awesomeness. And when we can see that, when you can see the story of God play out in the Bible, and you can see that how we walked away from God in the beginning and how he had this plan to come and rescue us through Jesus. And then Jesus dies and rises, and he gives each one of you that puts your faith in him your spirit, you can see and feel how much he loves you. And from, it's from that perspective that as he asks us to do things, as he asks us to enter into a deeper walk with him, it requires a greater obedience to him. And I have noticed that he will, Christians can kind of uh, flatten out a little bit because God's saying, okay, you've done this, you've gone this with me, I want to show you this new thing, but we're like, no, I'm good, I want to kind of, I don't want to go there. And then you'll kind of sit there for a while, but the Holy Spirit doesn't give up on you and it keeps coming back, and then eventually... The hope is that that thing you want, that he wants you to obey on, you will do it. Because it's our disobedience to the things that he's telling us that keeps us from growing into a deeper walk with the Lord. And it doesn't have to be hostile disobedience. It can just be um, sort of a checking out. Sort of, I'm not really interested in that. Ah, oh, this seems like a good idea. So what I want to encourage you all to do As we leave as the temple of God, as as the the outposts of Eden that are going into a world to bring the light into a dark place, what I would encourage you to do is ask yourself, Lord, where are you challenging me to grow in you? What area of my life have I not surrendered? What is kind of keeping me where I'm at versus growing into a deeper walk with the Lord, going further up and further in? I want to end with the way that David ends the psalm, which is my prayer for all of you and for myself. I'm going to read that last bit again. It says, how can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I will be free of guilt, praise Jesus And innocent of great sin. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. So everything that you say, everything that you think, may that be pleasing to you, Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He is our rock and our redeemer. And as we enter into a time of worship and communion, we can remember the story of God, the story laid out in Psalms of Jesus, who became, who became our substitute, our rescuer, our redeemer. So I want to encourage you as we conclude today that um, as you go up and... Take the bread that will remind you of the body of Christ that was crushed for us so that we could live and have life with God. As you take that bread, you remember his body that was crushed for you and the life that he gives you, and the joy that he wants to give you, and the kindness, and the gentleness, and the patience, and the goodness. the faithfulness and all the stuff all the fruit he wants that for you he paid a great price so that we could have that as we drink the juice we remember his blood that was poured out for us his blood that cleanses us from all of our sin so that we can read the entire Bible with hopeful hearts thankful hearts for a Savior that rescued us and redeemed us and called us to be lights in a dark and dying world. Lord, we love you. Would you stand with us? Hi again just a
0: reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect if you're ready to be known we'd love to know you and we hope you'll join us soon for our live sunday service at 9 30 11 a.m or 11 a.m online thanks for listening